on Sanibel Island, the beach is alive. If you walk down its shores, its white and gray sand sinking beneath your feet, the waves passing up and down, you will notice hundreds of little shells. Sanibel and its sister island to the north called Captiva are known around the world for these shells, mostly ovular white clam shells, sometimes pink or coral, sometimes broken bits of curled conch. Walking up and down, you can see every variety of every kind of shell, gleaming in huge piles of hardened white organic material. Alongside the shells scattered across the beach, there are spots designated by yellow ticker tape. Within those specified diamonds, buried beneath the sand, there are sea turtle eggs, loggerhead or green sea turtles, or even a rare leatherback turtle. Their shells are buried below, and by the time autumn comes around, they will hatch and begin their first march to the sea. Sandpipers and seagulls and ibises and egrets strut the water's edge, occasionally jabbing their little beaks into the bursting sea to grab a quick bite, only to retreat again from the encroaching tide. Out at sea, pelicans and ospreys swoop low over the water, diving every few moments to snatch a larger fish clean from the water and disappear over the horizon to enjoy their well-earned meal. Just walking the beach for any amount of time, the land is teeming with life. That is never more evident than when you are standing where the water meets the land, where the grains beneath your feet have become so saturated that you sink just by standing still. That wet sand collapses beneath your weight, revealing more shells beneath the surface. There, glittering like Christmas lights, are the coquina clams. They are pink and blue and yellow and white, gleaming and shiny. They are tiny, the size of a dime or a penny. You can grab a handful of sand and have maybe two dozen of these little shells within. When the waves surge over the bar and sweep up the great strip of beach, the coquinas are along for the ride, tumbling themselves wildly, but many forget. Shells are not just collectibles for us to grab and put on our mantle or fill up a jar. They are alive, created for specific use by specific animals. Hermit crabs hide in conch shells, mussels hide within the wing-shaped gray pieces, sand dollars are not just beautiful little white disks. The coquina at first glance are just magnificent little rocks that come erupting from the sea. That is until they begin to move. It's so slight you may not even notice it at first. The waves may crash across your feet and your vision may shift away, but peer long enough at the sand and you'll see them wiggling their tiny, tiny shells to disappear from view. The concealed creature within the colorful shells literally wiggles the shell just enough so that the sand parts and it can take up safe harbor amongst the other clams beneath the surface. When some other heavy-footed beachgoer passes again, however, and the sand is kicked up, disturbing their hiding places yet again, they will wiggle and resume their watery solitude. The beach is alive on Sanibel Island, and there's no question as to why. Not only does it have one of the most unique histories in the entirety of Florida, the island itself is nearly 70% conserved land, made up of locally protected tracks as well as a massive national wildlife refuge that spans most of the northern edge. With the Caloosahatchee River and the Pine Island Sound to one side and the Gulf of Mexico to the other, Sanibel Island is one of the last major islands off our coast before you reach the Everglades. 
It is 12 miles long and 3 miles wide, almost the exact size of the island of Manhattan, a startling urban mirror image to Sanibel's natural green corridors. Grab a bike and cross from end to end, and you will soon see a spot unlike anywhere else, rich with history, steeped in culture, and covered in rabbits. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is a very special episode. On this day, two years ago, I released the very first episode of Wait 5 Minutes. With everything going on in the world and our state coronavirus cases increasing every day, I'd like to do something very special together. I'd like to take you on a podcast vacation of sorts. Many of us are stuck inside, wary of traveling anywhere beyond our comfortable beds. So for those of you unable to have a proper summer vacation, I'd like to take you to Sanibel's sandy shores, rich with stories and nature. For the next little while, let's go on an adventure together. One thing that I really love about our museum is it's not behind glass. It's nice that I think everything is very visible and very accessible, and if someone wants to pick up that can and read the back of it, you know, they can do it. That is Emily Alfino. She is the executive director of the Sanibel Historical Museum and Village. Uh, I was the executive director of the Pure Water Coalition. Mm. That's People United to Restore Our Rivers and Estuaries. Mm. Um, prior to that, I'd been a reporter on the local papers. So I had some background in writing and publicity and all those things. So that was in my favor. And then the nonprofit experience was in my favor. So, so I was working for one of the other papers for a little while, and this, they advertised this in the paper, and it sounded like exactly what I wanted. So I was lucky. They hired me, and I've been here nine years. Um, interestingly, before I knew anything about this place, uh, my now husband took me here on our first date. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. We are standing in said village, a collage of historical buildings scattered around, trees swaying over the old tin roofs. How long has this uh, museum been in operation? 1984. Okay. Uh, the, the front building, which we'll go to, was the only building here, mm. and so that served as the museum in total. And then over the years, we were able to add buildings. Mm -hmm. And we're pretty much full up right now. Yeah. Yeah, we don't really have room for anything else. <laughs> and the buildings are all from different... Uh, I saw the, the map up at the front has a bunch of years listed for all the different buildings. Are they? Is it sort of a conglomeration of like 18, different eras? 1896 to 1927. Got it. This museum is closed for the summer season. Its usual hours cut short because of the pandemic. Normally, they're open until August, but they had to close mid-spring to keep travelers safe. They are optimistic that they'll be open to visitors in October with safe guidelines in place, but everything is still up in the air. Today, there are no guests. We are free to wander the village on our own, with the warm water of Tarpon Bay lapping the island's northern edge. That water, a barrier to early European settlers, was a great advantage to the island's first residents. They were called the Calusa. They had lived on Florida's southwestern coast from Tampa to the edge of the Everglades for centuries. When the Spanish colonizers arrived to Florida's shores, the Calusa were the first to encounter them. They lived in comfort along the Gulf and on the Gulf's barrier islands by using the water to trade with other settlements along the coast. They used those barriers as unique farming sites. They would also build mounds where they would leave behind detritus from their homes. 
These mounds have survived centuries of change and one is still accessible on the northern edge of Sanibel Island. When the Spanish colonizers arrived, the Calusa refused extensive commingling, stating they didn't need the Spanish tools or ideas. They had made this place their own for centuries without the Spanish, and even though the diseases that the Spanish brought significantly harmed their population, the Calusa survived widely into the 1800s until opposing tribes in the region wiped them out for good. They had resisted the Spanish for 300 years, but encroaching imperialism led to their demise. Around this time, when Spain was handing Florida back to the United States in 1821, a man named Richard Hackley had casually made a trade with the Duke of Aragon in Spain. Hackley had somehow acquired land on an island in the Gulf called Sanibel. Now, it's unclear why the Spanish marked it as such. They gave it a very unusual name. The most common belief is that it was originally named Santa Isabella by Paul Stelion when he landed on the island in 1513. Isabella refers to the queen he served, and over the years, the name on the map was shortened to San Ibel, two words, until it eventually became Sanibel. Richard Hackley, the new landowner, sold some land to the Florida Peninsula Land Company, who slowly began to disperse tracts to American settlers. That first attempt, however, failed, leaving the island abandoned by 1849. But citrus came for southwest Florida the way it came for east and central Florida. It swept in a wave of prosperity on its back, along with plenty of other crops. In northern states, farming would be stilted by the encroaching frost of winter. In the south, frost rarely came, and this island had plenty of topsoil healthy enough to be used in farming. Fort Myers, just north of Sanibel across the water, soon became a booming agricultural city, and Sanibel followed. By the late 1800s, new folks were living on the island, a lighthouse had been built, and a few families had taken up a comfortable livelihood on Sanibel. Crops had to be sent out via boat, but it didn't matter. The island was growing. One family who found success was the Baileys, who opened a general store on the island in 1899. That is not where Emily Alfino and I are standing. We are actually standing in the second version of Bailey's General Store, built in 1927. That original version, built in 1898, along with much of the island, was critically impacted by a hurricane in September of 1926, but we'll get there in a moment. This building, the second Bailey's General Store, has cans along the walls, clothes on hangers, tools and implements in cases and corners, this wasn't just for food. This place did everything. They sold everything. Um, their slogan was, if we don't have it, you don't need it. <laughs> they sold everything from farm equipment, as you can see in the back room there. Yeah. Food, clothes, clothes, sundries, pharmaceutical things, such as they were back then. Yes, and everything happened here. Socializing, the phone was here, the telegram office was here, yeah. they voted here. It was the hub, really, of the whole island. This is still somewhat true for the Bailey's General Store that exists on the island today. It's almost at the dead center of the island and as close to a downtown as the town has. Getting around Sanibel is very interesting. First of all, there's only one way in and one way out via the causeway built in 1963 and updated in 2007. The causeway starts at Punta Rasa, formerly the southernmost telegraph office in the U.S., where it was first heard that the USS Maine had sunk, sparking the Spanish-American War in 1898. 
The causeway then connect with two small islands where folks set up their cars on stony beaches and fish, play catch with their dogs, or just watch the brown pelicans hunt. Then, when you're on the island proper, there's really only a few directions you can go, east, west, or south. See, the island is mainly composed of two routes, one on the northern edge of the island and one on the southern. Several roads connect those two edge roads, but if you want to go anywhere, all you have to do is pick which direction you're heading, east or west. Along those roads, you'll find everything you might need, a bank, a pharmacy, a handful of grocery stores. There are restaurants of all variety, though mostly fish shacks. There are gift shops in all sizes, though none quite as unique as one called She Sells Seashells. At the center of the island, you'll find a handful of landmarks. There's Doc Ford's, a restaurant owned by author Randy Wayne White, home to the best key lime pie on the island, by my estimate. There's Jean's Books, a pair of bookshops catty corner to each other. One of the two stores only sells mystery novels. The other store sells every other genre, but mostly history texts. The cashier tells me the owner, the eponymous Jean, is just a big fan of mystery novels. The next block over is a huge parking lot. Taking up most of the plaza is Bailey's, the third iteration of this general store, owned by the ancestors of the same family who opened the first one 120 years ago. Inside, you'll find anything you may need, including, but not limited to, very delicious donuts or a nice cup of coffee. They sell books up front, including one called My 92 Years on Sanibel, which chronicles the story of Francis Bailey, son of the original Frank Bailey. Emily Alfino actually helped create this book, cataloging all of Francis's stories to be bound in one edition. And my original office was in the Bailey store in the back, so I was sitting at his desk in his old office while I was writing a book with him. So it just seemed like I belong here. <laughs> you know, I really should be here. Outside on the bike trails that crisscross the island, you can head west-northwest towards Sanibel's sister island, Captiva, or you can head east and find yourself at the foot of one of Sanibel's oldest structures, the lighthouse. The lighthouse is at a dead end on the island, the very eastern edge, accessible by car. You turn a corner where you are greeted by the San Carlos Bay to the northeast, and before you, emerging from the brush, is the tall brown structure of the Sanibel Island Light. You're likely picturing a traditional lighthouse, a thick tower with a stairwell within and a platform at the top. Rather, the Sanibel Light is more of a column, 98 feet tall, iron and skinny, with a boxy structure on the outside. To scale the tower, one would have to climb the ladder affixed to the side, a straight vertical shot to the flashing light. There are two white buildings right nearby, part of the operation of the lighthouse itself. Tall brick chimneys rise from their roofs and one currently houses an osprey nest. The whole property has been a national historic site since 1974, but the lighthouse itself still operates under Coast Guard operation. One of the original lenses, by the way, is in safekeeping in the Sanibel Historical Museum and Village. When Emily brought me inside, you cannot fathom my excitement. This is the lighthouse lens, the third lens of, that was in the Sanibel Light Lighthouse. It's on loan from the Coast Guard. It's huge, bigger than you'd expect, solid and glass and oddly shaped with ridges down the side. This was such an integral part of this island's function. And here it was, tangible, right there, 
The idea for a lighthouse on Sanibel goes back to those first settlers in the 1830s. When Richard Hackley first brought folks to the island to start that community, the isolation led to their downfall, but those citizens clearly saw the potential of business along the coast, and they petitioned for a lighthouse to be constructed on the eastern edge of the island. Twenty years later, after that first attempt failed, another request was made to Congress to build a lighthouse here. Twenty more years passed before a survey was done and the island was deemed suitable and, at last, 51 years after the first pitch for a lighthouse, the bulb was ignited and passage into the San Carlos Bay was safe for farmers and ranchers to sell their wares via ship. With a lighthouse and industry now passing around their shores, Sanibel had the potential to be a vital port on Florida's Gulf Coast. From around 1880 until the mid-1920s, the population slowly surged to around 250 residents. And then, as is so often the case in Florida, a hurricane struck. September 18th, 1926. Sanibel's minimal population hunkered down for a long day ahead. At dawn on the 18th, the hurricane struck Miami as a Category 4 and surged west across the Everglades, blasting back onto the Gulf around Bonita Springs. By late afternoon, the hurricane moved toward the waters around Sanibel. Neighboring cities on the coast were flooded, fish and crustaceans scattered across the streets, buildings turned to ruin in the hurricane's wake. Over 300 people died, and most of South Florida was left in pieces. Sanibel Island was handed a cruel fate. Their previously prosperous topsoil that brought so much farming to the island had been drowned in salt. Seawater saturated the soil and farming was no longer a viable option. The 26th hurricane oh, wow. uh, washed over the island. Uh, they had a storm surge washed over the island. The salt uh, in the soil was very detrimental to farming. And then about the same time the railroad came, so farmers in Fort Myers had easy access to send their produce up north so it made Sanibel less special. That That's was it, it for, for farming. Those two, those two things happened at about the same time. The citizens were without hope, and many fled the island, leaving the population around 100 residents. It remained that way for 40 years. Those who remained, however, built from what was left to create a space all their own. Many buildings had to be rebuilt, and a new community had to flourish in the ruins of Sanibel's second attempt at a community. Though the population shrank and industry faltered, it's this era when the community developed the personality that it has today. That's personified best, perhaps, in the post office. It was wiped out by the hurricane left in shambles, pieces cast to sea. The man who ran it, Will Reed, was out of a job, but soon, after the hurricane, the post office was rebuilt, and today, it's in the historic village. Now you can tell maybe that what they did was they went in the water, a bunch of kids, and they fished out whatever pieces he could use to build this. And you can really see, when you look at the ceiling, how everything is uneven. Wow. And that was just because they, they captured whatever they could from the destroyed home. They salvaged what they could and brought the post office back. It's here now because of that. After the storm came, nothing was perfect here on Sanibel, but the citizens made do. 
Occasionally, new folks would arrive, and sometimes they'd show up with a wild scheme all their own, such as the case in the story of the Algiers. Well, that was um, a Mississippi River boat mm -hmm. that a rich family bought and uh, retrofitted into a mansion, and they they rode it to uh, Sanibel, and they they dug a trench so they could get it onto the beach. And it was on the beach at Algiers, which I think is across from the cemetery. You heard that right. A Mississippi riverboat, a huge building, was piloted to the coast by a congressman named Lathrop Brown and his wife, Helen Hooper Brown. Lathrop had been FDR's best man at his wedding. They were prominent figures in the New England political sphere. They had visited the island many times before and soon bought 30 acres. There, they planted this old boat in the sand and reconstructed it as a home for themselves. They dug a canal along the coast, ripping up land so they could drag the boat to its final location. Finally, they got it in place after years of work, only for Lathrop Brown to die suddenly in 1959. The strange mansion was left on the beachside, unoccupied, until it was bought for parts in 1982. Its bell wound up here at the museum. The road where the old mansion once stood still bears its name, Algiers Lane. Like I said, most of the island is accessible by bike, and if you turn onto Algiers Lane, you'll soon find yourself on an isolated path that leads to a very special spot. Turn the corner, and there they are. A dozen headstones in an isolated cemetery. Some belong to the Reed family, others to the Rutlands. Three unusual ones sit in the back. One dedicated to Gloria Johnson, whose birth and death date are listed as unknown. Another is simply dedicated to Baby Wiles, born and died in 1967. A rocking horse sits next to their grave. But the one closest to the path stands out the most. It simply reads, Unknown male, found near lighthouse, died 1961. Visitors have stepped over the fence around the cemetery and placed shells on this specific grave marker. Something about the word unknown lingers in the air here. I wish we knew his name. I think everyone who placed a shell on this sign wants to know his name. For now, he is unknown. Two years after the unknown man was found, the new causeway was built, 1963. The island's population had remained small for 40 years after the hurricane came. People were able to travel themselves and their cars across the water for many years, but this causeway brought with it something Sanibel would need to survive. Tourists. Naturally, there was pushback. The way of life on this island could be totally ripped apart by an influx of travelers and developers who would wish to see the place turned into a condo jungle. The bridge opened on May 26, 1963, and soon enough, this former farming town became the lush, isolated island that could draw all sorts of visitors. The developers, of course, flooded in. Plans to build high-rise buildings sprung up, and the marshy middle of the island would soon be covered in buildings ripe for rich folks to find their perfect winter getaway. But the city of Sanibel fought back. 1974, mm -hmm. Sanibel became a city. Uh, with home rule because they didn't like um, Lee County was planning to build 90,000 units on the island and so they were up in arms about that. They developed the Sanibel Plan which conserves land and has many development restrictions 
that drive people crazy but that are a good thing you know you, you can only build so high you can only build so much per acre and all that and um, I think it's about 70% of the island is conservation land. 67% of Sanibel is protected, whether it be under the Wildlife Refuge or protected by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation. If you do want to build on the island, you have certain rules you must follow to the T. From the coast, barely any buildings can be seen at a distance. It's all green. And riding around on your bike, you can dive into the protected tracts of land. Some you can't even enter at all. I took a bike ride through the Bailey Tract, named for that very same family that opened the grocery store back in the day. Out there, cars are a distant memory. The little restaurants and bookstores disappear in the brush. Out here, it's just you. Well, you and the marsh rabbits. They're a special breed of brown rabbit that are known to swim through swamps and hide in the wetland brush. They are everywhere on this island, hunted by the birds of prey, the alligators, the coyotes, and naturally, the humans. Emily Alfino is not a fan. They, they eat everything, they're invasive, they don't belong here. They're, I'm sorry, are you doing a no, cute, tell cute, me, cute tell little me, bunny no, please, story? Tell me about the rabbits, I think please. They, they, eat, they eat everything, they eat all the plants, they eat the bromeliads, they'll, they'll eat anything. You can plant something and in the next day it'll be down to the ground. And they're, of course, they're proliferating like, like insane. And that's why you're, I don't know the exact rules, but you are allowed to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> you do actually need a small game hunting license, but regardless, if Emily is any indication, the bunny population is not exactly popular. Nevertheless, they have plenty of space to roam, along with many, many other animals you can find here. And perhaps that's one of Sanibel's greatest traits. Space. It is far from everything on the coast, and nearly everywhere you go on the island, you're far away from everything else. It's rare in a congested world like ours to feel well and truly isolated, but on Sanibel, on your bike, or walking the beach, or standing at the base of the old lighthouse, the overwhelming sense of solitude does not pass. For a moment, you can fill your lungs with sea air and just be there. In Florida. The sensation on Sanibel is why I made this show in the first place, actually. Two years ago, I became very passionate about a railway that was cutting through land south of Orlando, so I started a podcast to talk about it. In that time, the show became a love letter to you, to us, to this place we know like the blood in our veins. I was sick of being told I should be ashamed to be a Floridian, and every day since I started this show, my pride in this place grows deeper. We are not perfect. Atrocities and cruelties are as tied to our legacy as oranges and tourism. It's a black spot we cannot scrub out. But on Sanibel, pain and destruction, discovery and growth are all tethered together. The shells and the Calusa Mound, the old general store and the key lime pie, the lighthouse, the causeway, the rabbits. It is an island of contradictions as we are a state of contradictions. This hurricane-damaged, sun-soaked jungle where we all decided to live is made up of all the things we are ashamed and proud of, all in one spot. Sanibel now has a population of about 6,500, with maybe a thousand people crossing the causeway per day, on average. Sanibel became a city to protect themselves from development in the 1970s, and the plan has worked. It's still quiet and green, humble and unique. Most visitors come for the thing the island is known for, seashells, which tumble up the shores in sparkling, colorful variety. 
Many may come and go and never know all the history here, all the people who passed through. And that's okay. There will always be people like Emily Alfino who cherish that history. Well, educating people is very rewarding because nobody realizes that we were a farming community. We just seem now like a tourist snowbird community. Well, we are. But I think they get a richer uh, appreciation for the land when they realize it was farmers and they had it really, really rough back when they first came here. Um, it's also very rewarding to work with the docents. Um, I love learning more about history all the time. I get questions from people that make me delve deeper into things and um, it's, a fun, it's a fun place in every, in every way. The topics are fun, the people are fun. I'm very lucky. Lucky, I think, is an apt word. I, too, feel lucky. I hope we can all go to Sanibel soon. I hope the world feels safe again, and we can gather on our beaches and eat key lime pie, shop in old bookstores, and bike the trails together. I know it'll come soon. When it does, I'll see you there, feet buried in the sand, watching those colorful little shells hide from the inevitable return of the crashing waves. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If this is your first episode, if you have not listened to any episodes in the past two years, that is perfectly fine. I am so glad that you are here. The fact that this community is continuing to grow means everything to me. I am so proud of everything this show has been and has become, and all of that is thanks to you for showing up, for telling me what you want to hear, for telling me how much it means to you. It makes me proud to be a Floridian, and it makes me proud to tell these stories together. If you did enjoy this episode or any of the episodes in the last two years, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and I would love if by year three we have ten times more listeners than we do today. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. And you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a huge thank you to Emily Alfino at the Sanibel Historical Museum and Village. I had such a lovely morning chatting with her. If you would like to see more of what the museum is up to, you can do so at the link below. You can also pick up her fascinating book about the Baileys and Sanibel below as well. Thanks to Laura Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. I truly do not know what this show would be if it wasn't for all of the incredible photography that we got to do at the beginning of this year. I'm so excited for the things we will get to do in the future as well. All the music used in this episode and every episode is from the fabulous Lobo Loco. Go ahead and listen to their music. They are all wonderful. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode, the beginning of year three. Until then... I am Nick D'Alessandro. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for listening to this episode, to any episode. It would not exist truly without you. Until next Monday, 
be good to yourself, be good to others, wear a mask when you go outside, and of course, as always, please drink more water. Have a good week. <laughs>